the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so uh, Micah Hogan, if you remember him, is in Wisconsin doing his Masters of Divinity, and he's studying under Hans Borsma. Uh, and I've been on a Hans Borsma kick lately reading some of his books. And uh, the one I'm reading right now is called Scripture as Real Presence. And the, it's, it's a prolonged invitation to read the Bible as the early church read it. So all throughout, he's drawing lessons from how Origen and Athanasius and Chrysostom, how they read Scripture. Oh, oh I thought you were signaling something to me, and I thought... <laughs> Just checking. Uh, but he, he, he's teaching us from those church fathers how to read Scripture. And when I came to the readings for today, I just laughed because here's Scripture inviting us to learn how to read Scripture from Scripture. Watching these stories build on each other and, and weave together what they have to say by interpreting and then reinterpreting each other over and over again is complex and fascinating. In Exodus, the people are thirsty. Fair enough. It's a desert. Um, and, we, and we know something of that. Um, we might be complaining for a, a lack of toilet paper or something. <laughs> um, but we have needs. And uh, they had needs. And they wanted their water. Probably would have wanted toilet paper if they knew what it was. <clears throat> and so they quarrel with Moses about it. Fair enough. He's the one that's leading them into the desert. And they quarrel with him. Moses' response, though, is interesting. He says, you're putting the Lord to the test. So, so they're, they're, they're mad at, at Moses. And Moses says, you're mad at the Lord. Which is an interesting move for him to make. I mean, if one of the boys is mad at me, I don't think, oh, they're really mad at the Lord and putting the Lord to the test. I think the boys are mad at me. But Moses says, no, there's something else going on here. You're mad at the Lord. So then God says, okay, Moses, I will stand before you at the rock, strike it, and water will come out. So God does provide a solution, which Moses does. And then the place is named in reference to their testing of the Lord. So it reemphasizes, you wanted water. That was testing me, says God. And I'm going to name the place accordingly. So what you thought was just a matter of providing the basic needs, uh, your basic and right to desire for water, wasn't really about that at all. That was you testing me. So this is called the place where, this is the place where you tested me. We'll call it that now. Okay. Psalm 95 picks up immediately on the language of the, the rock. So the rock had been struck to provide water. And now God is now named the rock of salvation. So even though he was tested, he was the one who provided water. And now he is named after that rock. Who are you, O God? You are the God of salvation who provides water. But in Psalm 95, the people aren't testing God. The people are appropriately worshiping God as the God who provides water from that rock. Come, let us bow down and worship. 
Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. This is exactly the kind of worship that the people of Israel should have been doing. And instead, of, instead, they grumbled and tested the Lord. But now we get a taste. We get a taste of what they should have done. They should have praised God in this way, which would have been really hard to do. And then just in case um, you think I'm crazy for connecting these stories, it refers to it. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, where, you, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. It's refer, that psalm is referring back to that history of the people tempting God, testing God, because of their different needs and the way they responded in anger. And God then responded in anger and wrath himself. You didn't worship me appropriately. Instead, you tested me. So 40 years for you and everyone in this generation will die. But I will be faithful to my promises. I will bring this people to the promised land, but not the ones that are alive right now. So we get sort of a, a, a retelling. Psalm 95 retells that story. It tells it both rightly, how it should have happened, and it tells it in a way that reminds them but you are still vulnerable, so be careful because we don't want to repeat what we did back during the Exodus. And now I'm in a bind about whether to go to Romans 1 or John 4 first, but we'll go to John 4. <clears throat> in John 4, we have another story about desire for water. Right? So we, we just keep on going with this theme. But the, the story quickly gets weird. That we move from a desiring of water to a desiring or to a talking about living water. Like regular, the stuff that we would get at Albertsons if it were on the shelves is no longer on the table very, very quickly. And so Jesus is taking this opportunity to reinterpret Psalm 95 and Exodus 17, those kinds of stories, and saying, yeah, we, you thought those were about water. They're not. Or if they are, Maybe they are a little bit, but they're not basically about that. He quickly takes it to a completely different level of thought. And then he also takes things to a different level of thought in relation to this woman. As he starts um, taking apart her life when they hadn't met before, and she talks about all the husbands she had and how the one that she has now isn't her husband. The key to them, but then, so then we have, but then after that, we have a third shift, which is also strange. She transitions. As soon as she gets analyzed and her life is opened, she says, okay, but we were, so where are we supposed to worship? Which seems a little bit of a non sequitur, like, okay, let's go back to theology. I, I don't really want to talk about my uh, sixth or seventh husband or whatever it is right now, not husband. Uh, let's talk about worship. But I think it's connected. All of these stories have to do with a, a longing for something, a longing for water. But all of them are really about worship and not about water at all. And so when, she ha when there is this talk about water and then a, an even better water, and then her life is opened before her by uh, Jesus' hand, she immediately turns to the question of worship, which is what Psalm 95 and Exodus 17 were about. You thought these were about water. No, they're about worship. 
And the worship reorders the passions, reorders our natural desires. The disciples come trotting along. Hey, Jesus, want some food? And he's like, Psh, food. My food is doing the work of the Father. Now, I don't, I don't know about you. Um, my, metabolism, my metabolism has slowed down some over the last 10 years. But from about age 15 to 35, I had the metabolism of a Ferrari. And, uh, but I can think once or twice in my life where I missed a meal because I was so focused on the work that I was doing. I was so enthralled with the reading that I was doing. <laughs> that I just went right through lunch and then realized later, oh my gosh, there's my lunch. What the heck? Because that just doesn't happen for me. Jesus seems to be a man so utterly in love with his work that he's able to call that his food and is able to ignore the desire for food for prolonged periods of time because his worship of the Father, his giving of himself over to the worth of the Father through word and deed is so complete that it orders his desires. And that drink, he says, gives eternal life. So we have worship and knowledge reordering what we desire. In Exodus 17, the people didn't worship, responded using their passions, and in anger, and, 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 and tempted the Lord, and got in huge trouble for it. In Psalm 95, we see proper worship res responding to God the way it should be done, with a reminder, like, but be careful, because we could repeat this thing. And then in John 4, we get the fulfillment of all this, saying, yeah, all that longing for all those things, that's really just a way of picturing, a really tangible way of picturing the thing that we ultimately long for. That's where Hans Borsma is calling scripture as real presence. He's saying, look, reality is sacramental. Reality is full of things which are visible manifestations of the real things. The real things are the things we long for that God provides for us. The other thing is it's not that they're not real. It's that they're pictures of the real thing. The food, the water that we long for. Those are not the real things. Those are the pictures, the real pictures of the thing that God wants to provide us with. Romans, Romans gets interesting. This is probably the central passage in scripture that the church uses to base its teaching on homosexuality. And without it, I think the church's doctrine would probably be quite different. But it's here. But it's here in the, in the, in the, within the shape and the context of the letter to the Romans as a whole. And Paul's using it in a really, really interesting way. He says that the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness, for we all know and have seen God and who he is to enough of an extent to be able to worship appropriately. So the, God, the wrath of God is revealed against our refusal to worship him properly. And in doing that, Paul is diagnosing Jew and Gentile alike. We, we did not do three things. The summary is that we did not glorify or give thanks to God. But Paul just talks about three different things that in our refusal, refusal to glorify God happened to us. We became foolish and futile in our thinking. Our hearts were darkened. And we ex exchanged the glory of the immortal for the mortal. 
Those are things that happen to us as a part of our refusal to glorify God. God's response is absolutely fascinating. God gives us over. He doesn't punish us. He hands us over to sin. It's not that we sinned and then we get punishment. It's that we sinned and then we get punished by being handed over to our sins. So God gave us over. He gave us over to the sinful desires of our hearts. He gave us over to our shameful lusts. And he gave us over to depraved minds. So Paul is analyzing John, Psalm 95, Exodus 17, and he's saying, okay, here's what happens. Life is a matter of us responding to God in worship. If we do that, that's everything God meant creation to be. If we worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit appropriately, body and soul, community, that is life as God meant it. But we don't do that. And what happens when we don't worship appropriately? All of creation becomes disordered. All our thinking, all our feeling, every, everything about us becomes disordered and jumbled. And God hands us over to that disordered jumbleness and allows us to, to steep in that disordered tea that we have concocted for ourselves. And it's dreadful. As a refusal to worship, we get thirstier. As a refusal to worship, we get hungrier. The things that we long for naturally become utterly disordered. So what is the, what is the solution or what, what's the, the good news in the midst of this? The good news is that worship, we see in all these stories, worship is the thing that's meant to order reality. Worship is meant to restore our proper desires. Worship is meant to turn pure our desires. And worship is meant to restore our minds. This whole argument culminates in Romans 12 when Paul says, be restored by the renewing of your minds, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This is your fitting act of worship, your reasonable act of worship. It's worship which restores mind and desire. And that brings us back to the most beautiful picture, I think, in all the readings for tonight. Psalm 95. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. We're meant to worship. We're meant to know the worth of God and respond appropriately to the worth of God in a way that acknowledges that worth and allows that acknowledgement to order everything else we think and feel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.